This is why we love racing in all its forms. That's King of Swing fighting though. Oh, he's a superstar, a champion pacer. Untapped holding on. What a win. Untapped from the RSNC. They've come. But Gold Trip is brave. 100 to go. A length and a half emissary. Gold Trip is going to win the Lexus Melbourne Cup. For the next hour, RSN is cracking the codes. Good morning, everyone, and welcome to uh, Cracking the Codes on this uh, Saturday, January the 28th. Good morning, Simone, and good morning, Matt. You nearly didn't know what day it was yeah, because it's very hard at this time. (laughs) It is, isn't it? Yep. It's a good way of reminding yourself by actually checking the race guide uh, because there's... Every holiday feels like a Saturday, is that, or is that just me? No, it's not just you. Good morning to you both as well. But um, yeah, after doing the show on Thursday, it um, seems a bit strange to come back on our normal day Saturday, doesn't it? Well, that's right. That's right. Hey, I'm looking forward to today. Looking forward to... Uh, More than usual? Oh, no. Always always very high level of uh, enthusiasm, Dan. Uh, looking forward to um, Eddie Caruana. That's a, a name that... It's because it's such a... Uh, it's a name that I've been hearing a lot of my career, Eddie Caruana in Greyhound Racing, and he's going to join us this morning, Simone. And tell us, tell us why we we got the great man Eddie on. Well, we touched on it on Thursday with a man called Max Wintle, who actually passed away last week. His funeral was yesterday, and Max was the first person to take a dog overseas called Dennis Direct, that was owned by. Don Fox and Lindsay Fox and Max went on that trip, which I'm sure Eddie will be able to elaborate on. So I just thought it was a great chance to reflect on Max Wintle, the person, the character, the stories. And, you know, for many, many years I've been thinking I should get him on when I used to do the other Greyhound show or on Codes. But he was the type of person you would have to have in the studio because you would not be able to wind up the interview down the line. But then COVID hit and he's, I think he was 89. So it was one of those situations that never eventuated and I do regret it now because I think he would have been an, even an hour's worth of show, um, Max, that would have entertained everyone. But Eddie's going to come on and just talk about... Max Wintle and um, some of the stories in that famous night when he was inducted into the Hall of Fame. So we'll talk about that a little bit later on. And Anne Anderson, Dan. Yeah, Anne, um, well known with her husband Bill through Lauriston Bloodstock and they've produced some of the best bred horses in Australia and uh, made a concerted effort a number of years ago to get some imported blood and got some mares from America and are creating some very good racehorses. And of course, they've got... um, Ladies in Red. We'll get an update on on her and where she's at. Um, Hurricane Harley, horse that uh, broke the track record at one stage, beating Lorcan Varat, beat it twice. So it's back in town, having its second run back with Emma Stewart tonight. Unfortunately, there are other stars. School captain's been scratched tonight, but also Honolulu Bay they've got as well, and they've got a, a, a lot of horses prepared through Lower Long Farms heading towards the yearling sales as well. They're a very important component. Of, uh, of the yearling sales, Lauriston Bloodstock, through Lower Long Farms. And Honolulu Bay, it holds a track record at the Geelong track. We were there yesterday morning training for Pony Trots, which is tonight at Melton, and Honolulu Bay has its name up on the winning post there with the time. I can't tell you what time it ran, but James Herbert's It was pretty drivers. quick, quicker than any other <laughs> horse has gone there. One forty. So, Dan, are these Honolulu Bays and Ladies in Reds the product of... Um, a mishmash of international breeding? They, some of them have been, yeah. absolutely. In the importation, uh, I remember there was, I think it was Aston Villa, Kabbalah Karambi is the mother uh, of Ladies in Red. Uh, and through that, there's been a lot of top horses that were able to create. Poster Boy, who, who now is considered as a colonial stallion, uh, and his first crop of yearlings will go through the sales this year, and everyone's raving about them. And, of course, they're, they're owned and, and Poster Boy bred, but owned by Lauriston Bloodstock. And, and as I said, as well as owning a number of horses that I've just named, they're producing a lot of horses that go to the sales every year. I've got to say I'm fascinated by the the quickening times with the shrinking breeding world that we're tapping into these bloodlines yeah. that are making harness horses 10 seconds. For, I know I go on about it, but I can't believe that development and it's got a lot to do with what we're going to talk to Ann Anderson about. No no doubt. Doubt. Uh, speaking of yearling sales, um, just, just looking a little bit ahead to, to later this morning as well, Auckland's turned into Atlantis. The place is underwater, literally underwater. It stopped horses getting to Wellington uh, for the massive race meeting at Wellington today. Uh, the yearling sales, uh, what sort of effect it's going to have on those. Mick Guerin's going to join us just a little bit later on in the second hour, Dan, just to tell us about the city of Atlantis and how it's uh, impacting on the big Caracas sale and also uh, the... Um, uh, the the p- people and horses getting to the big Wellington meeting today. So Mick Guerin's going to join us a bit later on. Uh, James Cummings, Neil Bainbridge to explain 
What happened? What happened? Mm. What Ed? happened last night? What the hell happened last night? Certainly, it's it's no point attributing blame, but we just need an explanation about what happened with that big meeting at Cranbourne last night. Um, there was a section of the track that was um, at the 200 metre mark. It may have been a, a piping issue, burst pipe or something like that. Um, this was the Dean Lester meeting. Um, what's the? Uh, is there a plan now? Can, can this meeting be resurrected and salvage something from that? So Neil Bainbridge, the CEO, is going to join us a little bit later on. Marty Sign and Duff and, and so on. And my guess for Cracking the Codes is a girl that Jim Conlon, my old mate who is her boss, told me fell off a hundred times the first, first few months she was on, but she just kept getting back on. And she rode in front of probably the biggest crowd assembled at a race meeting on Boxing Day, and that was at uh, Balnarring, and it was only her second race ride on a horse called Stirrup. So Jazz is going to join us a bit later. Reminds me, you know the story of Autumn Leaves and, and the jockey that uh, had uh, 16 rides but fell 17 times? Loose boots. And uh, the seventeenth fall was when he <laughs> fell off the, uh, the the stretcher, the stretcher, the ambulance stretcher. <laughs> His wife used to pack toothpaste and pajamas every time he went to the races because she knew he'd end up in hospital. Oh, hey, what was his name? Les, Les Boots. Les Boots. Adelaide oh. Jump Jockey. Right. His wife used to put his pajamas in his bag when he went to the races. And and I think we believe it's true. I'm not really sure yeah, no, it is, true. but it's close enough to the truth, even with the stats that we've just given here. It actually makes it sound like it's it's fictional, but it's closer to the truth than you think. Well, it sounds like a good story anyway, was it? What is it? Don't let the truth get in the way of a good story. But it was 1920s or something, Cosy, is that right, around that time? Uh, or later, maybe even a bit later. No, I've just tried to find it here. I have found that the quality's not that good. Um yeah, uh, the great bird Bryant. I don't know how good this quality is. How many or can you have 41 fours and 39 rides? Well, uh, if you get around to that, I rode a horse at Chilton one day and fell going out the straight. I caught him, remounted him, fell at the half mile and uh, broke his neck and I fell out the ambulance come to hospital. <laughs> <laughs> and then I, I spent that long and I spent 15 years out of eight in that hospital and... Uh, I wore white gowns every time I thought I was Dr. Ben Casey to finish there. I was the only jockey, they reckon, in Australia who got to bed and breakfast for 15 years. And I went home one weekend after 13 years. I've never been home for a weekend. People asked me what I was doing. I said it was a jumper's flat today. <laughs> Oh, that's a classic. That's, that is the greatest. See, I didn't you know put what's great about it? He was so I? self-effacing. Yeah, he like he just was happy to admit. And he said he fell twice at Cheltenham one day. He fell three times. Yeah, once got back on twice. Fell, and then off and the, then the stretcher. That was the stretcher. But I said he had about sixteen or seventeen rides. What was it? Forty-seven or something like that. So I was actually the other way. I said it's close, it's closer to a true story than fictional. And I actually didn't put enough mayo. There was a couple of extra bottles. Well, and his well name, googled, Cosy. Well, yeah, googled. that was a great pee. Autumn leaves because he. Autumn, what do autumn leaves do? They Fall keep down. falling off. But imagine being told as an owner that the trainer's putting leaves on your horse today and you'd be behind the eight Just ball before home. you started. Did you he have any actual success? <laughs> did, he ever, did he stay on well enough once to actually win a race? Anyway, he's kind of been part of folklore, the, the name Les Boots, but that, I, I'd never heard that audio before. So what a giggle fest that was. Was that Bert Bryant, Cosy, yeah, and yeah, Les Boots? That was Bert Bryant. You could tell they were just cacking themselves. Bert <laughs> lost it. <laughs> Pardon my French. Uh, I'm looking at it. He never had a, uh, never rode a winner. Yep. Never and never stayed on a horse for more than a mile and a well, half. Well, must have had a shortage of jockeys because it'd be like, oh, who we put on? Well, he never he yeah. never stays the course, but we got to put him on. But uh, well, back anyway. in those days, I, I don't think the jockeys were necessarily uh, cemented in as the jockey until just a few minutes before, were they? Because they'd be get put up on the old board. Most people wouldn't know. 
I wonder whether Eddie Caruana was actually listening to that because I reckon Eddie likes a giggle and he's uh, he's on the line. Uh, uh, Simone, uh, let's uh, let's have a chat to the great man himself, Eddie, to pay uh, respects to someone who was a bit of a pioneer in Max Wintle. Yeah, good morning, Eddie. Um, welcome to good Cracking morning. the Codes and thanks for joining us. I don't think we've ever had you on Codes before and um, what a great time to come on and talk about someone like Max Wintle that's um, been such a legend in greyhound racing. And how are you this morning? I'm very good, thank you, Simone and Sean. And uh, yeah, I uh, yeah, I, I, the story with Les, Les, I um, I remember it well. That, that his wife used to take his pajamas to, to the races. <laughs> yeah, I, and we couldn't work out if you were listening to the audio. It was so funny, Eddie, listening to how giggly they were when they were talking about it, and how much. Uh, uh, Les was happy to tell the story of his own failings like that. So it's a it's a rare quality, isn't it? It is very much so, very much so. I can make fun of yourself, yeah. A... And Eddie um, Max Wintle, who we've asked you to come on this morning to talk about, um, his funeral was yesterday. But I know there's so many stories, and he used to frequent the meadows and come in and have a chat to Marg Long, and a ten minute chat would be an hour, an hour and a half. But um, what can you tell our listeners about Max Wintle? Just, I mean, there's so much uh, to talk about, but what can you sort of get out there in a short space of time? I think the best way to describe him is he was one of a kind, you know, and uh, maybe two of a kind because him and, I don't know, you remember uh, Les Mary who passed away a couple of years ago. They were two great mates. Les lived in Collingwood. Um, Max lived in the reservoir and they're really good mates and they raced together. They, they, they went all around the country pulling off plunges and... Uh, you know, back that back then, when you trained greyhounds, you, you didn't race for the prize money. You raced for uh, for the fun, yeah, because prize money wasn't that good, and so you had to get to get smart and uh, and try and get the money out of the punt. And that's what that's what Max was a expert at doing. You know, he did it did it for years and years. He he raised a big family and gave them all the best and all practically all all of the of the punt on the greyhounds because uh, Les had a truck that used to. Uh, sit outside his home in reservoir for months, months on end when when the going was good. The truck would just sit there and then when things got a bit tough he'd be back working. So and that's how that's how Max was most of his life. But uh, and as I said, most likable person you can talk to and as you just mentioned, um, his visits to Mark Long from five minutes and then two hours same like just like his phone calls, you know, he'd call you for a couple of couple of chats and um, you'd be there two hours later. So that's what Max was like, you know. You mentioned, it, it, I think our listeners love people who can uh, sort of recreate a certain era, Eddie, and you can certainly do that because you've been around for a long time and I'm sure Max could as well. And you mentioned living in Collingwood and made me think of John Wren and Power Without Glory and that era of SP bookies and bookies and... Squizzy. Big, yeah, Squizzy Taylor and big crowds at the races and massive bookies rings. If you can just take us back to that era where Max was pulling off plungers left, right and centre, which you just don't hear about these days with... Less bookies and tote and all that sort of stuff. What was it? What was a night at the? Take us back to that time to say whether it was Olympic Park or somewhere else. What it was like with the bookies ring and someone like Max Wintle trying to pull off a plunge. Well, he had to do it. Obviously, uh, he had to coordinate it because uh, because in those days the only time you, the only way you could get a bet on a, on a greyhound race was to be on track. Yeah, and the only other option was to be on a separate track. So you say. Say you wanted to, to back a dog at Olympic Park, but they'd also be betting, say, at Wengera, they'd be betting, betting on Olympic Park, and even in the state, you know, you might go to to Nara or something and have someone there with a couple of bookies betting on Olympic Park, so you get to coordinate the whole thing. So you had your bowlers. Just let's keep going with this because this is fascinating. Uh, so you you say if you were executing a plunge at Olympic Park, mm. he would disperse people to, to the other venues to try and corner the market with all the bookies on on the night. Is that is that how he played it? Yeah, that's that's exactly that's exactly how, how it happened. Yeah, that's right. And and it was it was hard to coordinate, but uh, and also the other way thing we used to do is. Is in the, not not just, that's before my time, but in Max's early days, they used to call what we say beat the grader. You know, you, you, you'd enter a dog at uh, one of their remote country town in New South Wales, and um, and race there, and then two days later you'd have the dog in somewhere else. Well, the before the, the people might know. The bookies don't even know that you've won a race somewhere else two days earlier. Because so the form guides didn't time. update in time. Is that what is that what it was? It was too quick to get the information out in that era. That's, ex that's exactly right. That's exactly right. That's what happened. So yeah, we called beat the graders and beat the bookies. Yeah, because they haven't got the 
information that's 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 happened two days two or three days earlier. And he used to travel around Max Wintle, sixty-five tracks in Australia. That will be a record that will he, never be broken. Yeah, I believe he. I think I think he won races on sixty-two or sixty-one different tracks. Yeah, it's amazing. And there was a story that Dennis Huxley. Dennis yeah. now works at the Trots doing the numbers out in the stabling area. And Dennis wrote a story back in 1980. And um, there was a, a part in it where Max had said, um, I just recently made a trip to New South Wales and with a big car towing a trailer, the petrol bill alone was well over $100. <laughs> like, you can't really imagine, you know, that you'd be complaining about $100. But back in 1980 and probably prior to that, that was you might have filled your tank up for well, $8 or something. That's right. And Eddie, you have to make up for it on the punt. So how much, say a well-executed plunge. So say the Greyhound's running at Olympic Park. You've got someone at Wang and somewhere else. You've got bookies everywhere. What kind of result could be achieved out of a well-executed plunge, say back in the 1960s? Oh, look... Uh could be any amount, to be honest. We, I got speaking for personal experience. We we landed a, a huge plunge back in the early eighties. Uh, we had a, we had a, a friends of mine had the bitch in the national championships in uh, in New South Wales, and, uh, and and we flew back in those days when you um, there was a curfew on on Mascot Airport, so you you know if you were in an early early race at Wentworth Park or or Herald Park, you could, you could fly back, and we did that and. Uh, and I can assure you that there's more than $40,000 changed hands with the bookies and us back then. And uh, I remember flying back and we, 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 we shot at everyone on board three drinks all the way back to Melbourne. So. <laughs> I'm sure you did. And the remarkable thing too, Eddie, Max was superstitious and said you should never have more than four greyhounds. So in his backyard in Reservoir, he only about trained three greyhounds and um, he took out yep. the national sprint and distance there's a long list of races that he has won the Warnable Classic in in recent times and he was also inducted into Greyhound Racing Hall of Fame not long ago and um, you'll remember this night and this is another thing that you can you know inform our listeners of we'll take a little listen to the audio of Max being inducted and um, if you come out on the back of this Eddie you'll be able to describe the night perfectly I'm sure. Congratulations, Max. <laughs> no need to be shaking up here. I am, I am, I am. No, when you look back at that screen, uh, what are your thoughts? You seem very overwhelmed. I and I saw him and I, oh, I couldn't believe it. Memories, memories, memories. I was so proud, so very, very proud. I'm absolutely out of this world. I am. And a, a shock and a half, to, sitting there and all of a sudden, you know, whatever, I will wear it really and truly. We've had a wonderful life, the children and Gloria, and I put it down to Greyhound Racing at Bondus. It's a family affair that truly pulls families together and keeps them together. Eddie, that was a, a very small snippet of me actually getting a word in on the stage yeah. that night. Can you just tell everyone what actually went down? I uh, was that, and that, that, that describes Max said he was genuine as anything, and, and you, you, you know, firsthand, uh, Simone, that was one of the best interviews I've, you know, I've seen at these awards nights, and I was, I was actually disappointed that that they kept trying to cut you short because you could have gone for all, you could have gone for another hour or half an hour, you know, telling his stories, and and as a matter of fact, Neil Brown and I have tried to get him. Get him in front of a, you know, in front of a microphone with a, with a tape recorder to, uh, to to get all his stories, and uh, and and Gloria wouldn't allow it. She said, "No, no, no." She said, "We'll end up getting sued." <laughs> <laughs> but do you remember me getting booed? I was getting the wind up from about ten different people in front of me, and I said to Max, "Look, we're going to have to, you know, wind this up," and I got booed. <laughs> I can't believe it because because uh, everybody was so so caught up in, in the whole thing, and especially the younger generation that done said. They will never experience that, that sort of thing ever again. They, um, they you know, they, they, they want to keep listening. And, and yeah, and it, was, it was so disappointing that they tried to cut you short. Well, is that the first time you've been booed, Simone? I, I reckon it's Cosy. Sure what about you? Have... I'm up to about 500 boos. I'm sure you know, people are booing incidents. <laughs> Eddie, Eddie, you would never have been booed. You're a legend, of course. So was Max. And one of the things that we were doing on Australia Day, Eddie was talking about um, 
uh, that idea of Australians trying to conquer the world. And we spoke about Farlap and Karazi and Crisp and all these things and uh, Cardigan Bay in the harness world. And, and there weren't a lot of examples of um, Robbie Britton had taken one overseas and, uh, and, and raced on either side of the Atlantic in the Northern Hemisphere. But Max was a very much a pioneer with um, the, the travelling of greyhounds internationally. Yeah, yeah, well, he was. Uh, that's, yeah, in the early 60s, it was unheard of, actually. And the dog had a good dog called Dennis Direct. And it was uh, invited to a special race in America. And uh, the dog was actually owned by Lindsay Fox. And Lindsay Fox sent uh, his brother, Don, with, uh, with, uh, Max, with Max to America. And there's a similar story to Farlap, actually, because, unfortunately, the dog never raced there because he got sick. So they had to come back without without actually having a race in America. So, yeah, the the luggage was sprayed by with DDT in Fiji, so that's why the greyhound was so ill, and he got to America America and was put on a, a drip, and yeah. um, he actually wasn't able to come back. Eddie, he went to a trainer there because of the rabies and the diseases, the quarantine. Oh, so that's right, yeah, that's, yeah. yeah that's, and he went that's to stud. Story, yeah. He did go to stud in America as well. Um, but it was one of those greatest stories that never happened, but just so unfortunate. But thankfully, the Greyhound did survive in the end. But you think back in the 60s, yeah, they wouldn't have been considering live cargo. They just, you no, know, the, no, exactly. Yeah. It would just protect the luggage did you from foreign a, diseases. Did you get a dog named after it? or some... We had, Eddie, we had a dog called Donnie. And you'll remember, oh, you'll know Dennis Huxley extremely well, of course. And uh, so it was by Brother Fox. And Dennis and I went down in my mum's station wagon to uh, the back road through Cape Clear and Lismore to pick up this greyhound at some um, kennel when it was a little pup. Uh, down at Warnable, we called it Donnie because it was by Brother Fox and Donnie was Lindsay Fox's brother. And we got to Lismore to the pub because Dennis needed to be rehydrated and the dog accidentally escaped out the back of the car and it took Dennis five stri- five lazy strides to catch it. And we that knew was it wasn't going to be much good because it couldn't outrun Dennis Huxley, who later trained it around his Hills Hoist clothesline in some bizarre way. So, um, hey, just on the international pursuits of greyhounds even though it, it hasn't happened at any great level compared to the gallopers and and even the trots is there a feeling that because our gallopers struggle to be internationally competitive unless we have an absolute champion but what's the theory in greyhounds about how globally competitive our greyhounds would be say if you took our amron boy and wow she's fast to any race overseas would they would they be champions or is the level higher now and historically overseas, do you think? I personally think they would be champions because uh, I think I think we do have the best racing in the world and uh, the best conditioning of the greyhounds in the world. And it was proven probably, oh gee, going back to 25, 30 years ago when when the Top Gun was first, uh, the first of Top Gun was run in 1992 and uh, was a Bill Collins' uh, concept and, uh, and we... And and we had we had the later on we had the international top gun. We used to invite greyhounds from overseas. We had greyhounds from Ireland, Wales, England, uh, racing here, and a lot of them actually came out here to race and finished up staying here. And uh, and and really, they I don't know whether it's because they had to travel and all that sort of stuff, but our dogs proved to be much superior to the, to them at that at that stage. Yeah, and I think I think the same thing applies now. Eddie, uh, you've had a distinguished career in many facets of, of greyhound racing, but in, involved with the board and as chairman for a long period of time. But you've announced it's it's time that you might step down from uh, being chairman. I did. I did at the AGM uh, last Monday week. Yeah. What are the and plans now then? Handed handed over to Barbara Beckhoy, who uh, she she'll be a great chairperson. She's uh, don't know where you know Barbara, but she's um, she's a she's a veterinary. Doctor uh, Doctor Barbara Beckhoy, she is, and she's got her own practice in um, in Langwarren, and she's been the vet uh, cause vet at Warrigal and Cranbourne over the years, and lovely, lovely lady, very, very clever, loves the greyhounds, and she'll she'll be she'll do a great job at the, at the Meadows, I'm sure. Yeah, I think she's. Um, you've done an amazing job too, Eddie, and I'm not here to pump up your tyres, but the fact that you've been how many years have you been chairman? Uh, it would have been 22 years in March. Yeah. And you look at um, how the club has progressed and you've gone through that transition of Olympic Park to the Meadows and all the rest of it. And, um, of course, Marg Long was there for about 27 years as well. 
And yeah. you've directed and steered a very, very tight ship. Um, it's got it to where it is today. You look at the Phoenix that's been at the Meadows the last two years and the crowds that, I guess, crowds you'll look forward to over the Australian Cup Carnival as well. Um, and I think, you know, with these roles of chairs and people do get older, getting younger people in and filtering them in um, strategically, um, getting, you know, having the old blood and the young blood come through. And Barbara's a wonderful person. She knows greyhounds. And she knows greyhound racing, so I think it's a fantastic appointment. And I'm, I've absolutely no doubt that Barbara will continue with the terrific work that you've established there, Eddie. I got no doubt as well. I'm very, very confident in the committee, and as you, as you know, someone we're always on the lookout to get younger people involved because uh, uh, in recent years, if, if, if anything that's come good out of COVID is that uh, a lot of lot of young people have got exposed to greyhound racing. You know, when they're sitting at home and they couldn't do much else except have a bet, maybe. And uh, and 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 I've noticed since we've come back to the tracks, with you know, with full public involvement, there's so many young people that are involved, and, and they I get phone calls all the time. People want to buy greyhounds, and how do they get involved and all that? So, so that's been a that's been a very big plus for our sport. And 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 at the Meadows, we've always tried to do that. We always have special family nights, you know, a few times a year where all the kids come out and we give away a few bikes and this and that and yeah, look, we've um, covered a lot of ground here this morning with you this morning on Cracking the Codes, Eddie, and we do thank you for your time talking about Max and, of course, the Meadows as well. And um, I'm sure we'll see you around there. You won't disappear <laughs> at all. But, I'll, um, I'll, be there. I'll still be there every Saturday night. <laughs> yeah, no, you're very, very dedicated. Thanks for joining us on Cracking the Codes. Thank you, guys. I really appreciate it. Thank you, guys. We will now take a break, guys, and come back with your guest, Dan. Looking and Anderson to, yeah. on the other side. As we go into the break, Australia Day stakes. It used to be the William Reid on this was actually used to be Australia Day, but uh, I might leave it up to Cozzy here. A bit of a roulette. Throw out the stumps. You pick which replay is appropriate here. 2022. Marabi now with that turn of foot at the 250 and race clear. Marabi, 200 to go, put four legs, five legs, lightsaber to Raf Sinawan late from Maria Mia, but Marabi, 100 metres to go, four legs in front from Sinawan flying, but she destroys them. Marabi won it, ease down, two and a half, Sinawan to Raf lightsaber. This is RSN, Cracking the Codes. Welcome back to Cracking the Codes. I'm Dan Malicki with Simone Fisher and Matt Stewart. And time-wise, it is 24 minutes to 11. Our next guest is Anne Anderson with her husband, uh, Bill. Uh, they've created their Lauriston bloodstock. And, um, look, I, I would think it's the most identifiable brand and uh, and uh, a breeding set up in, uh, in harness racing at the moment and uh, uh, a bit like uh, some of the, the trotting ranks and Duncan McPherson, as we know, and uh, uh, Jim Connolly and uh, Yabby Dam Farms. Uh, it started pretty much all from overseas and the long-range plan that they've had, I think they're a bit of, uh, a, bit of a genius. And, uh, and I think Anne's the one that's actually the, uh, the CEO of, uh, of Lauriston and she joins us now. We're going to have a chat about racehorse and some yearlings coming up and, and some of the great names that you've got, Anne. Thanks for joining us on cracking the codes oh good morning Dad. thanks for having me it is it's it, it seems like it's a who's who list but it's where you're at today it was a long-range plan um and uh getting some u.s blood in and some of that blood that you got in has created some of the finest harness sources we've had in the last 20 years oh yes dan we've been very fortunate in that uh, the mares we've we've picked out selected have done the job for us we've We've got current families in those mares that we bought quite a few years ago. Some of them were, were you know, the mares we actually started out with in Aston Villa. And then Kabbalah Karen B came along. We've had Myrna Jurasu who left Follow the Stars. So it's been ongoing, but some of the original mares uh, are still very current today. So it sounds like it's a and sort of like an evolving mishmash of local and international pedigrees, Anne. And I, it's a bit of a fascination of mine is how much the breed has quickened in the last 10, 20 years. How different, as, um, even as far as yearling preparation goes, physically and then as, as they turn out with the, the speed and ability they show, how different, if any, if they are different at all, are the yearlings that you are breeding now compared to, say, 20 years ago with these international bloodlines? Oh, I think the fact that we've had so much 
uh, frozen semen come into the country has been a big boost, especially in our pacing ranks. And you see that too in the trotting ranks with European blood now. But I do think it's, it's made the yearlings much more athletic and they're much more natural paces from a very early day. So if you had one from 20 years ago standing in front of you now and one of these modern ones, would they look completely different physically, the horses? Yes, they would. They would. Um, they're, as I said, much more athletic physically. They're, most of them aren't as big. They're uh, more natural in their gait, in their pacing gait anyway. And I think that when we, years ago, yeah, Holmes Hanover from New Zealand was one of our leading stallions. And his horses were always big, rough bone sort of horses. Mm. Took a little bit of getting going um, and, and were more staying types. These ones just full of speed. That's, that's what we've bred. We've bred speed horses now. What do you look for confirmation-wise in a mare, Anne? What do I look for? I don't really... I look at a mare and if she's got something that I really don't like, like I might think that her progeny might hit their knees or something like that, that I think I, I can't breed that out of them, um, then I look for, uh, really, I buy the family. Um, but I've got to look at the mare, obviously, and like the mare to start with. Um, and that's just confirmation, uh, attitude, see what she's like, get them out of the box a few times, walk them around, uh, just do a, a general look at over the mare herself. Um, but what attracts me in the first place is what's on the catalogue page. I'm wondering whether the square gators have even advanced at a greater rate than the paces is I mean I remember back in the day Dan that a lot of the even the great trotters we had had shuffly rough actions but then the, the modern internationally bred trotter seems to have a much more streamlined uh, action and is is that a that guess of mine right that, that maybe it's the trotters that have even advanced further than the paces in the last 20 years I think they probably have yes I don't I've never bred a trotter don't breed trotters. I'm strictly a pacing girl, but um, I, I think they have, and the opportunities have grown for them too. So I think that the fact that they've got more opportunities um, with the influx of the overseas blood, particularly European blood as well as the American, uh, has made a big difference to their gators. Yeah. Um, and uh, yearling sales time, uh, it's it's big time of the year for you. You're not only are breeding the horses, but you've got stallions now, and it's pretty exciting when uh, a horse that uh, you've had from day dot, uh, poster boy, uh, is uh, getting his first yearlings to the sales this year. Well, that's right. We've been looking forward to this day for a long time now. Uh, it seems forever to, to breed a yearling or, or get one to the sales to, you know, get to Mary foal and then do the next 12 months to get the foal and then from there to the yearling sales and then even further to the races. So it, it is a long job, but uh, it's good to see them. They're nice types. Uh, we've kept a couple ourselves. They've just gone to the breakers, a colt out of uh, Pistol Abbey and a filly out of Kabbalah Carambee, which makes her a half-sister to ladies in red. So uh, we're expecting a bit from them. And uh, we're sunny early days yet. They've only been there a few days. So uh, we're following their progress with great interest. Ladies in Red's a tiny little diminutive mare, isn't she? She's not as small as you think, but she's not known for being big. I reckon she grew a little bit, and didn't she, through those preparations. But she's certainly not going to stand out with stilettos and a hat as being six foot three. <laughs> no, no, she's not. She's not. But uh, I agree with you. She has physically strengthened up and she looks a bit stronger she doesn't look so as narrow as what she did and uh, she's got a lot more muscle definition to her now did you say there's a half brother going through or a full brother uh not this year we we've no we've kept a filly oh. so a half half uh oh. to her we've kept ourselves okay but um no she's only had uh two colts Cabalai Caribbean has only ever had two colts, so I don't know. I wouldn't mind another colt to offer it it's, uh, at the yearling sales, but uh, she's stuck on having fillings at the moment. So, from a breeding perspective, uh, that's pretty good. What just for our listeners, say Gallops listeners who aren't aware of yearling sale prices, Caracas coming up in the Gallops world, and we've just had Magic Millions. Like, what would I say by a, a leading sire? What would a well put together half brother? To ladies in red vaguely go for as a yearling. What what sort of potential investor here, Anne? Possibly. <laughs> like like 150, 200, something like that. Would yeah. that be ballpark or not? I'd say that it'd probably be the starting point, yeah. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. So it yeah, could get up I to like three, three hundred and fifty thousand? 
Oh, no. We wouldn't get to that level. No, right. no unfortunately. No. No. So, well-bred think... half-brother to a champion is around 250000 Is it would about see well, you Well, it depends how they present. They've got yeah. to have the confirmation yeah. and pray well. I think, uh, Lauriston, uh, have, you've had the top lots at a lot of the sales in the last number of years. Uh, yeah, yeah, thereabouts, Dan, yes. Yeah, and uh, I think we still jointly hold the record for a filly at 160000 She was the fourth sister to fly the start. So, um, yeah, but that New Zealanders seem to um, seem to get higher prices overall, or larger averages than what we do. So um, I don't know why, but um, yeah, we'll we'll have to work on that. And what sort of preparation do you put into the yearlings prior to the sales? Do you do any round yard work with them? Obviously, lots of handling and grooming and you know pre- presentation. But what sort of work can you put into them prior to get them looking muscled up and looking their best for the sales? Well, with Lower Long Farms are doing it for us now, Kath McIntosh. But when we had our own farm, we'd do uh, round work with them. Um, they might alternate between doing some round work on one day, going on the walker the next, um, or otherwise some hand walking. So it was a combination of the three things, and obviously three foods a day, uh, lots of brushing, lots of work on their feet, getting their confirmation correct. And, uh, yeah, it's just a whole package. But that was what we used to do in terms of the work with them um, to get them muscled up and uh, walking well for the, uh, for the buyers to come and have a look at. And I'm a little bit lovesick. My relationship <laughs> looked upon unhealthy by some people ladies towards in ladies in red. Yeah, but... yeah. She's got a restraining order out on him, uh, Anne. <laughs> I thought we worked well together. But I did have someone come up to me the other day and ask, you know, where's ladies in red? And I thought, oh, beautiful. I, I, good time to get Anne in and uh, just give us an update on the great girl. Yeah, well, we're very happy with her progress. Uh, she's still in the box. Uh, she's not very happy about that. Um, that breed is a, a breed that's up and go. They want to get out, they want to do things, they want to be busy. And she doesn't like being confined to her box, but she's accepted it pretty well, uh, Emma tells me. So we thought we were thinking the worst, that she was you know, going to kick the walls and just be a complete uh, nuisance, but she's been very good. So uh, she's still there. Um, she'll be checked again probably in a couple of weeks' time. She'll have an X-ray, and then she may get out and do some just walking, hand walking, or uh, out into a smaller yard for a period of time and back into a box. Um, but at the moment, we couldn't be happier with her. Uh, she's actually blooming. She's developed. She's strong. Uh, she looks a million dollars. So uh, everything is positive at the moment, and I don't see why it, continue, why it won't continue to be so. And in the greyhound world, there's been a school of thought amongst some people that um, with really good bitches that they should only have a limited number of starts, whereas other people have, you know, top breeders have raced bitches as long as they've been able to and bred and bred successfully. Is there anything with a, a standee that um, is telling you, and particularly a horse like Ladies in Red, that you'd be thinking, gee, we should only limit her starts and put her into the breeding barn? Or do you just keep racing her as long as she's fit, sound and healthy and competitive and then worry about that later on? Hopefully we'll worry about that later on because we have quite a few broodmares and as I said, Kabbalah Karambi herself is still breeding and we have another daughter of hers, beautiful woman, and there's a couple more behind ladies in red. So uh, we're not selling any fillies out of Kabbalah Karambi. So um, I would try and get ladies in red to do as much racing as we can within reason. Um, I think that that's that's her aim. Uh, we'd like her to, to go on and, uh, work, work, you know, race against some of the Colts if she can later on too. But uh, as she did in Queensland when she won the Rising Sun. So uh, that's the plan for her, but we'll just play it by ear and see how she comes back and uh, how she goes with her racing then. Just an update. School captain, I noticed a scratch tonight, which is very unfortunate. It would have been a short price favour and an outstanding two-year-old. What's the situation there, Anne? We were a bit disappointed, Dan. Um, it, not too often that you get a hundred thousand dollar race where you don't do, where you don't have to go through your heats and your semis. You know, it's straight in. But um, Nathan hasn't been happy with him for the last day or so, and I got a very early morning phone call this morning saying I think I'll take him out if you'll accept that because when he's not when the trainer who's had him there for a couple of years, Russell Jack, uh, isn't happy, then I've got to sort of think, well, you know, maybe we better just uh, play it, be a bit cautious. Uh, get the vet, get him checked out before we do any more. So the big picture for him is the, uh, obviously the New South Wales derby and this was going to be a pipe opener for him. 
but now we'll have to find something else. So oh. It is disappointing, but we always put the horse first. He's a good horse too, guys. So hopefully he's back sooner rather than later. And good luck with Hurricane Harley. It's great to have him back. And good luck with Honolulu Bay in the Hunter Cup as well. Hurricane Harley might join him if he wins tonight. But Honolulu Bay was super at Ballarat last week. So it's still... Uh, you, you took one uh, one negative this morning. It was very positive looking forward. And thanks for joining us today. Thanks for having me, Dad. Thank you. And Anderson, that with her husband Bill from Lauriston Bloodstock, preparing their horses through Lower Long Farms. And they've got a great team of horses. We'll take a short break and we'll be back with a really special story that emanated out of Belnaring on Australia Day. Now Black Caviar's let go by Nolan and she quickly raced up to here. The Angels got almost a length in front of him, sprinted away around the home turn. Then came La Rocket and Royal Ida, but it's Black Caviar by two links. Here the Angels can't answer this super filly who races away to make it five out of five. What a star. Black Caviar, two and a half here the Angels. Loving their racing, pacing and chasing. Matt Stewart, Dan Malicki and Simone Fisher. Cracking the codes. Down the side of the course, 600 to go. Steer up the leader. Burrows up underneath Angel Top. Damselfly's kept his on the premises as well. Two or three lengths away to Elastic in the orange jacket. Then came Foxtrot Mo, who was next. To the outside comes Main Beach, about to be presented. Over on the inside was Time of Glory. The rest of them a long way back, including at large Sebring, start of the outside. They're into the straight. Steer it. What's he got in the locker? Elastic is out to issue the pursuit. Damselfly's kept his out as well. Stirrup's in front. It's got a margin. Trying hard was Elastic the outside. Stirrup's in front. Elastic trying hard but Stirrup, Jasmine Trenwith I think she's lasted. Stirrup the inside. Elastic And she did last. She just lasted on the favourite Stirrup in the fourth race I think it was at uh, at Balnaring yesterday in front of the biggest crowd of any racetrack in Australia yesterday. Second ride in a race. First winner for Jazz Trenwith. What a massive thrill to scrape home and, uh, and she joins us. How are you Jazz? No, I'm fantastic. Did you, did you feel the other one coming in the last five or six metres of that race yesterday? I did, I did. I couldn't hear them coming down the straight and I knew I had the lead and um, and I knew I had plenty of horse underneath me. But um, yeah, it got tight uh, towards that last furlong and I could hear him and then I saw him coming up beside me and I was just, just hanging in there, syrup and and um, I got told, just yell at him, just yell at him and I'm throwing my hands and legs and just... Asking him to go, it was a, it was an amazing feeling. Second ever race ride. Picture this, Dan. This is like going out to sing at your, when you've just had one singing lesson in front of uh, in front of Hamer Hall yeah. or something like that. In front of five thousand people who are very close to the action too. Jazz, like that's a that's a big effort in front of a big crowd. Yeah, no, it was um, it was pretty cool. I, I was walking the track um, prior to the race before that one and. Um, and hearing them roar as those horses came down the straight was incredible. I, when I was in my own race, I, I was too focused on stirrup to even take notice of them. But um, it was an incredible crowd. Well, you'd get a bigger crowd. Your first win was in front of a crowd bigger than the majority of Saturday meetings in town. <laughs> it's uh, incredible, it's isn't incredible. It? No, definitely. Tell us about the bumpy ride at the start when you first went into the stables and started doing track work. Um, so this is Jim Conlon, Jimmy the Hat, as mm. he's known, and he's down at Pinecliff Jazz, and he loves you. He says you're the best staff member he's ever had, but he said you you you, you sort of had to pick yourself up off out of the dust a few times uh, when you first started. Yeah, I'd say it was more than a few times. Um, I've been riding horses or virtually all my life, and... Um, and thought I'd make the the transition over to track work, and um, Jimmy was uh, was good enough to pop me on board. What he said was the pony turned out it was um, a handy little horse he had called Pinion, and um, I never looked back. But uh, I think I, we had a, a rough start. I got dropped virtually every time I got on. Uh, it was a real rough going. Kept getting back on, but um, I had oh, a good fifteen falls. Very, very early on and just, uh, just kept getting back up. <laughs> well, Jazz, we were talking about a man earlier back riding in the 1920s, earlier in the show called Les Boots that fell off 17 times out of 16 rides. <laughs> I think the number was great because he fell off the stretcher as well and his wife would pack his pyjamas and toothbrush because he'd always up, end up in hospital. So thankfully that hasn't happened to you. But um, Jim also credited you with a preparation with another horse called Kiko. Can you tell us about Kiko? Uh, Kiko's a little pocket rocket of a horse that we've um, 
she's back in work at the moment, but uh, she's a capitalist silly that's got a, an attitude and a half. She's, um, she's as stubborn as they come and she's taken a lot of work to get her where she is. And um, yeah, but she's an amazing filly who's got a fantastic future ahead of her. Jasmine, I noticed on Rise you declared weight is 54 and a half kilos. You can ride that. You never thought of going professional? Um, yeah, it was always my plan to start off at the picnics and um, and see how I liked it and uh, if the race riding and the lifestyle was something that I was um, definitely interested in. It's still there in the background and uh, I'll take it if uh, if I love the, the race riding Probably this season or next season. We'll see how we go. I'm tipping you could walk past the jockey's room eating cherry ripes and cheese all the rest of them off who are wasting. Yeah, I think I downed about two sausage rolls before that race the other day. Oh, don't say that. Don't, don't. We have jockeys listening in in steam baths as we speak. (laughs) At least they'd be cheap at the picnic, so you'd only be $2 each, so at least it wouldn't set you back. Um, Do they call you Jazzy? Yeah, I I, I get a a few names, Jazz and Jazzy, uh, yeah, are the main ones, for sure. And uh, I was looking at your Instagram account and, um, like, I'm very impressed. It's full of horse photos and lovely horses and some that you've taken off the track as well. There's a, a lovely grey horse that um, you were riding last year and another horse, um, I think, called Beau Belmain. That, um, have you rehabbed both of those? Do they have tendon injuries? Uh, like Beau Belmain is, is the grey horse. Oh, right. he's, um, he's one that Jim had, uh, was imported over from Germany that... Um, decided he didn't like racing as much as everyone else wanted him to and uh he ended up a, a jumper and had some mild success uh over the hurdles and um yeah unfortunately did that tendon and um i adored him from day one and and, and begged and pleaded to be um a part of his off the track journey and yeah he's um, currently in the paddock at my mum and dad's place at the moment good thing you're not a punter Bo Belmain was the most testing horse for punters because as you say he came out from Germany and there was a big rap on him but he was a bit of a non-trier old Bo Belmain hey Jazz I did a story last week and I was touching on the female participation in uh, pony club and there's a, the, you know, obviously the, the involvement of females in racing and the riding ranks and so on. It's, it's, a, it's a real parlay in from the Pony Club equestrian world. And it's interesting that that connection exists because I, I Googled some stuff and there was a story about in 2021, Pony Clubs Australia um, did a sort of an investigation as to why so few boys were engaging in Pony Club, but so many girls were engaging in it. And there was sort of Q&A with boys as to what they did and didn't like about it. Well, it's amazing the, the, the amount. When I was a kid at Pony Club, there were a lot of girls, but there was probably just as many boys. But And Simone would, would know about this as well with her daughter, Darcy. But it's it's uh, almost... with your When you went through Pony Club to transition into racing, like Jamie Carr and Jess Eaton and so on, what was the, um, the ratio? male to female roughly was it basically an all girls sort of thing or not oh definitely uh there was probably one boy to every 200 girls it was um it was quite a girls game for sure the boys were very popular the, the few that there were around they're pretty smart when you think about it yeah actually yeah yeah narrow the odds considerably yeah so so there you go boys there's something to think about out there it's, it's like being on an all girl crew anyway so we, we digress Simone no well there's a couple of um, boys at our pony club and um, one of them Jack is in my daughter's group and the boys are like the girls just love them they get along so well and they just love hanging out together and, and all the rest of it but Jasmine you'll be you'll be able to verify this as well the interesting part is we don't see a lot at pony club but when you get up to EA and also you look at FEI and all that. There's men everywhere, right? But where do they, where they, come, do they from? come from? Yeah. I don't know. I've, I've asked myself that question many times. I, um, I, I have been to all of the higher-level competitions, and it is incredible. I don't know where these boys start or where they come from, but they, um, yeah, you get to those higher grades and they're around. There must be a private underground boys' education. <laughs> and you like, don't know about like it, Like you Matt. need a secret code to get in or something like that. <laughs> hey, Jazz, um, Tell us about riding work at Pinecliff. Pinecliff's the most extraordinary property in the wine area just near Mornington. It's got, it had a worm farm on the roof. No, it had a worm farm. It had a, a, a live roof with some sort of vegetation growing on the... It's the most amazing place owned by Jonathan Munns. No spare expenses spared. There's a trail that goes down to a nudist beach and all sorts of things. What's it like riding work at this amazing private facility at Pinecliff? 
It's just incredible, and I, um, I've given a tour of the property to quite a few people, and it, uh, they're all gobsmacked when they see it and see that, that a place, you know, it's over 100 acres in Mount Eliza. It's, um, people can't believe that it exists there. Um, it's a fantastic place for the horses as well. They, um, it switches them off that little bit, uh, which keeps them happy, and, and that's super important in their racing. So uh, they have a great time down there. Now, you can verify this. There, I think there was a massive worm farm and there was something growing on a roof. I do remember the worm farm. Um, they took all the manure and everything that, that uh, comes from the horses and uh, that, that gets put into the worm farm. I'm not sure, sure what, what they're doing at the moment with it, but, yeah, yeah that definitely existed. And uh, any rides down to Sunnyside and any awkward encounters with uh, naturalists or anything like that? It's funny you mention it. Well, I started in, in June, which was uh, obviously winter and um, down here, and and Jim mentioned it, and I honestly thought he was joking. You know, I, I was like, "Ha, ah, funny joke, Jim." And then as it got warmer, we were taking horses down, and then yeah, I saw a couple of Rudy Nudies out there, and um, they're so confident down there; they're happy to come up to you and have a conversation. And they're mostly <laughs> saggy eighty-year-old blokes too, aren't they? Oh, absolutely. <laughs> <laughs> hey, Jazz, from a distance, they all just look like an ironing board with a scorch mark on it. Don't worry. <laughs> Hey, uh, hey, um, no wool am I today? Are you sort of just now, now that you've had a win under your belt, you're just sort of spacing your rides, are you? Well, no, I, I tried to get rides. I called every every trainer in the book um, trying to pick some up for the week, but uh, it's, it's a slow start. Everyone says that it's going to take time. Hopefully that win uh, gets the ball rolling a little bit and uh, I'll be riding more consistently soon. Well, Jim's right. You're an absolute delight. And um, he does say that this is not, you know, betraying any secrets. He says he's, he's probably the best staff member he's ever had because you just keep persevering and you got that win. And I can't imagine what it would be like to have your second race ride in front of 5,000 picnickers at the famous Belnarring meeting. So hopefully that's just the start for you. Well done. Thanks for joining us on Cracking the Codes. And we'll see you at a picnic uh, venue uh, in the next couple of weeks, no doubt. Yeah, definitely. Thank you very much. Good on you, Jazz. Uh, Jazz Tremworth there. What a superstar. Oh, lovely girl. She's on the bus. She's part uh, of our bus we team. We haven't had people on, coming on the bus for a while, and she. Def- I was thinking that when we were talking to her. She's definitely one to have on the bus. Well, we do need a youthful injection on the bus. It's a little bit age, yeah. I think we're going to need a bigger bus. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Just get a Boeing 747, that might just do And it. that nudist speech, by the way, is quite frightening. We came. We went there by boat with Mick Kent a few weeks. Uh, last summer, actually, because there's a place where you... Was that the first to, time yeah. or the third time you went? On about the fifth sweep by. <laughs> yeah, no, no. Hey, we've gone over time. It's two minutes past 11. Simone, good on ya. Okay, see you Enjoy next your week. week. Enjoy yes. your week. Dan, um, I'll see you in one and a half minutes. I yes. might see you at Melton tonight. <laughs> coming, up, coming up on race day mornings, Neil Bainbridge is going to join us to take us through what happened at Cranbourne last night. Blake Shin, James Cummings, Mick Guerin, New Zealand's underwater. This might affect Caracas uh, and all sorts of things. Wellington Cup today, Ron Duffersey to find us the winners in Sydney. All coming up after this.